Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 10 being recorded on Wednesday, January 20th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Happy Wednesday, Scott. Same to you, Jason. Uh, your voice is particularly deep this week. You must have talked your, your heart out over at NRF Big Show. I did indeed. Uh, you and I got to spend a little bit of time together at NRF this week, which was terrific. But unfortunately for me, it was right on the back of CES. And I think two loud trade shows in a week was, or in a, in a row was about all my vocal cords could take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we appreciate you toughing it out for the podcast. It's, uh, you're a prof- true professional. I, I do it for the listeners. <laughs> so NRF was interesting. We were there with 30,000 plus of our closest retail friends. Um, what uh, Did you have time to walk the floor and, and what did you see that was interesting? I did. I think I actually got to walk the majority of the floor and there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, my overall impression was that there wasn't a lot of dramatically net new stuff from previous years. So, you know, I didn't I didn't feel like there was a major shift in the kinds of things that, that folks were talking about and showing at the show. It seemed like there, you know, were some interesting evolutions of some things that we saw in the past. Did you feel similarly? I call it, saw a couple new things. Um, probably my favorite was there was this robot that would, uh, it would, it would scan your body and it was kind of geared towards women and it would kind of tell you if something fit or not. And I thought that was an interesting, like why did someone really go for that possible solution with a robot is interesting. But then the robot itself had a pretty interesting format. Um, I think it was called robot labs or something like that. And uh, it was interesting. You could hold the garment up with a QR code and, and it would scan that and tell you about the garment and then tell it would scan you and tell you how it thought it would fit. So um, I thought it, it was good to have a robot for that. Cause I'm sure uh, your wife, so I said something to you, you know, what, either which dress should I wear or how does this look on me? And those are, as a husband, you've uh, at least I've learned over the years that that's a very dodgy question. So I thought it would be very handy to have that robot if, uh, if that ever came up. Yeah, I would like to have one of those at home just for responding to my wife when that question comes up. Yeah. Uh, I did see that robot, and, and that's a fair point. Like That was maybe a new trend this year is there were several robots on the floor. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those little like two foot ones there. They must be some commercial platform because a lot of people had those. Yeah, there's for sure that uh, telepresence platform. Yeah. And, you know, I think people are pitching that, hey, salespeople are uh, in one store that aren't busy can help customers in another store using using these telepresence robots. The Robot Labs one that you saw, one of the things that impressed me about it is the natural language interface was reasonably good. Like it seemed like you you could uh, use full sentences with it, and it generally was able to respond. Yeah, yeah, it was very kind of conversational. Um, one, and I, I I don't I'm not as deep into this as you are, but one thing I thought seemed new was a lot of interesting technology around um, interactive shelves. So I saw like four or five of them. One was um, a table that had like nail polish on it. You would lift up the nail polish and the table would turn the color and it would turn into an interactive display. And that, that was a kind of a, a vertical or a horizontal orientation. Then they had a vertical one where um, you know a connect light device would detect when you touch something. And then 
on a display, it would pull down some content from the website. Like this thing you're touching has four out of five stars. Um, and, uh, and then I saw a couple other ones, like the Samsung one was interesting. Uh, they had a, a, a see-through display. So the products were behind uh, a see-through, I guess it was LCD. And then they would kind of, so you would look at it. And I think they had a camera or something. Uh, and then they would kind of show 360 spin of the camera and they would overlay the camera with, with stuff on the see-through LCD that, that felt very minority report kind of getting to that level of, uh, you know, seeing through the product and whatnot. Um, so I hadn't seen a lot of that. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I do. I think there are a lot of new interactive shelves. The nail polish one you were showing, uh, talking about, I think is perch mm-hmm. and, uh, that's a couple cool com- uh, combination of technologies the, all the images you were seeing were projected. So they have this cool surface mapping technology where they can project images on like uh, not perfectly level surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also have a camera that does like 3D object recognition so they can actually see those bottles of nail polish to know when you pick them up and whatnot. I think they're deployed in a premium plumbing store that may also be called Perch. But yeah, definitely they were an interesting way to do interactive displays in a store. The Samsung one I saw, to me, there's fewer applications left in retail where you want to lock products in the glass case. Like even with the cool uh, video and product information in front of the glass case, you know, like generally we like to think of those things as product jail. And, you know, almost always if there's a way to get that out on the floor and let customers interact with it. It's going to sell a lot better. Yeah, but they had a cool see-through LCD, Jason. I know, I know. The that that is a trend. There have been a lot of those see-through display boxes. I'm I'm not totally sold if, for a jewelry store or something. Maybe that makes sense. There there are some other interesting shelves. There's a lot of shelves that are trying to figure out how to know what products are on the shelf. So Intel was using some printable ink to actually like print a scale on paper that then goes on top of a shelf. And they use the weight of, they learn the weight of the individual products to know what, what product is on each shelf. And, you know, if inventory is low or if a customer returns a product to the wrong shelf or those sorts of things. There are a couple other vendors that were using cameras and visual recognition to know what products were on a shelf. And none of them look completely ready for prime time to me. They all seem like concepts at this point and they would all, you know, frankly be pretty expensive things to deploy at scale in a retail store. But I do think they're solving a legitimate problem that retail has. It's very hard to accurately know what your inventory is in the store. You know, we've talked a lot about for Omnichannel when you do like buy online, pick up in store and things like that, that you have to expose the store inventory. And it's scary because that number is usually wrong. Well, brick and mortar stores have an even bigger problem. If some of their inventory is in the back and some of it's in the front, it's easy to sell out of what's on that shelf and not know that they need to go get the rest of the inventory from the back. So they can often lose sales from out of stocks, even when ironically they do have more of that, that product in their, in their storeroom. So technology that helps, helps get that inventory right is, is totally interesting. And it seemed like there were a bunch of companies that were trying to figure out how to do that. Yep. And um, longtime listeners will know that both of us are, are um, interested in augmented reality and virtual reality. And I saw um, there's one by your booth, I forget the name of the company. Uh, And then there was another one. Samsung had one. The Samsung one was just kind of walking through a 3D model of a house. And they were kind of, it was a bit of a stretch because you kind of had to imagine you were looking in a mall and then looking at products. But it it was cool to walk through this 3D uh, model of a house, though. Um, And then the 
uh, there was two others. There was something like aisle 411, and there was one that was kind of near the Razorfish booth. Uh, did you see those? I did, yeah. Uh, the aisle 411 one's interesting. That's a partnership with Google called Project Tango, and they're doing like 3D mapping of stores. There's a couple use cases. There's the shopper use case where you know you could at virtually visit a store from your home. Obviously, you, you talked about the use case where you could visualize something in the store that's hard to visualize, like the custom cabinets you're opening, at, uh, designing at Lowe's or something like that. But uh, the earliest, most practical use case, which makes a lot of sense uh, to show at NRF, is to use these things to visualize store designs before you build them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, retailers used to spend a bunch of money on, you know, these scale models of, of future stores and potential stores. And, you know, they would be imperfect and often you'd build the store and then realize you made a bunch of mistakes or had some usability issues and, and things that are really expensive to fix. And so, uh, using virtual reality to sort of visualize those store plans and, you know, even allow, um, test market shoppers to shop that store before you physically build it is a, is a pretty powerful tool that I think has some legs. Uh, mostly those things got me excited about when we're going to get our Oculus Rift devices though. Yeah, me too. Uh, although I, I, I have to remind myself, I'm going to have to buy a new PC to make the Oculus Rift work. I don't know if you're... Uh, yeah, I've learned that myself, so I'm I'm uh, working on that part too. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm kind of glad I didn't know because it made it easier to financially justify that there were you know two separate events in my mind. Yeah. One, one thing I saw I wanted to get your take on because you've probably thought about it more than I have. In, in e-commerce, we've, you know, the dynamic... Pricing ship has sailed, and we reprice stuff, you know, near real time. Um, and it, you know, it makes sense because it's more of a competitive pricing. There's like eight people competing with each other. But I saw these interesting mock-ups of. Uh, there was a couple different ways this was done. One was apparel, and another one was like vegetables or something or fruit. Um, and they had these little electronic price tags on there that were changing in real time. Um, and, you know, I saw it was kind of funny hanging around that booth. People had, uh, they were either kind of fascinated with the technology aspect or they were kind of like, oh, I hate this. I would, you know, I'd never want to go to the store and not know if I'm, I'm getting hosed or a great deal and, you know, how, how complicated is it going to be to buy an Apple in five years if I don't know the real time price of that thing? What do you think about that technology? So I sort of divide it into two things. I actually am a big fan of the electronic shelf labels or or digital fact tags if you, for the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of data that we share with shoppers online that shoppers are getting used to having that we still don't share in the store. And to me, the electronic shelf labels are a perfect way to share that data. So that's things like ratings and reviews, question and answer, and you know those those sorts of things. So I really like electronic shelf labels. These, these were tiny and they just had the price on them. Yeah. yeah. So I know the smallest ones just have the price, but most of those manufacturers make a wide range of sizes. Yeah. So I guess I'm hoping that the bigger ones win. There is a legitimate labor savings to just not walking out there and changing all the paper all the time. And so, you know, there's some reason to believe that they'll get some traction. Honestly, I've been saying I like them for a few years and they've gotten almost no traction in the U.S. So I'm I'm potentially wrong. I can tell you Kohl's is deploying them. Whole Foods is deploying them. But nobody in the U.S. is doing what you're describing, which is the dynamic pricing version. I'm somewhat suspect that real-time dynamic pricing is going to work in the brick-and-mortar stores. Um, So I only know of a couple retailers that are trying any version of that. There's a home improvement store, sort of like a Home Depot in the U.K. called B&Q. 
And I haven't been, they have one store where they're using electronic shelf labels and doing dynamic uh, in-store pricing. And they even changed the pricing for each individual customer based on your membership status with them. Hmm. And I haven't been to that store yet. I'm, I'm frankly uh, puzzled how that could work. They must have to RFID tag you or something. Well, yeah. And even then, what happens if there's two customers standing in front of the display? Yeah. Hmm. I'm curious how that works. Maybe it's overhyped. Uh, there is a store here in the U.S., Nebraska Furniture Mart, which is a very large furniture uh, campus owned by Warren Buffett, has a, about a 40,000-square-foot consumer electronics store in it that you can sort of think of as a Best Buy. And they're all electronic uh, shelf tags. And every night, they go online and scrape their competitors' prices, and they update every price in the store every morning based on that competitive survey they do online. So they guarantee the lowest prices and they actually have a mechanism to deliver that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that's a smart tactic for everyone to sort of race to the bottom. Like most of the online dynamic pricing is a lot smarter than just trying to be the lowest price. Yeah. But I do think that kind of dynamic pricing where they refresh their pricing every day is a lot more practical. If retailers started trying to price based on demand or do some sort of dynamic pricing in the store in real time. You know, maybe there's more shoppers at peak time, so they're offering better deals off peak or things like that. To be honest, I think the current pricing laws would cause some challenges because at the moment, there's some pretty significant fines you can rack up in about 26 states if the price on the shelf isn't the same price you get at the cash register. And if there's risk that the price on the shelf is going to change from the time you pick up that item to the time you get to the cash register, I don't think our current fair pricing laws contemplate that capability. Yeah, seems like that furniture stores kind of do it at night thing. But of course, this, you know, in the trade show, the prices are sitting there going crazy and it makes it seem like it's like this real time stock market kind of thing. But, but yeah, I, I guess I could, you know, I guess I could get my head around it if it's a, a low price and it's only going to price every night or something like that. And as a consumer, it's just kind of a low price thing. I, I think that would make you more comfortable. One, one area I also wanted to pick your brain on is, um, you know, for years, everyone's talked about beacons. Uh, and those are for, for those listeners that aren't familiar with that. It's a, uh, a low energy Bluetooth technology. It's usually a very small device in the store that talks to your phone and, uh, essentially does things when you get near it. Um, the one that I've seen that's most common is Starbucks. When you walk into Starbucks, I think everyone, uh, that drinks Starbucks has the app. It wakes the app up and it like flashes in the corner of your hold screen. And then it makes it very easy for you to go into the Starbucks app. It's kind of like a welcome to Starbucks beacon or something. Um, so, so everyone's talked about these for years and Facebook did this whole thing where they gave away a bunch of beacons. Uh, and I saw a couple, um, promotions about beacons, but I didn't make it to those booths. What did you see anything interesting beacon oriented and, and when are we going to have kind of, when is this technology going to really do cool stuff? Yeah, so I, I think beacons are potentially on the bubble right now. It's interesting. When they first came out, I was very excited about them, and I, I think the promise that they have is awesome. They're A, they're super inexpensive, and they let the phone know exactly where you are in the store. So, you know, they don't have to be as coarse as just knowing you're in the store. They can know what aisle you're in or what product you're nearest. And I think giving apps that kind of context lets those in-store apps be way more useful so they can, you know, help route you to different products or give you information that's relevant to the products that you you're standing in front of. They can, you know, collect really useful data about how you shop the store and do all sorts of things. So in my mind, the combination of them being really inexpensive to deploy 
and adding a lot of utility, I was like, oh, it's a no-brainer. These things are going to be really popular. But in reality, the main way they've been used is you walk in the store and they pop up a $5 off coupon on some product you had no interest in and no intention to buy. So they're spammy. Exactly. And so literally, I've come to call that use case geo-spamming. You know, there's a lot of evidence that the second time you get an irrelevant offer, you turn off the app's permission to use Bluetooth. And so once that happens, now I can't do any of the cool features that I just talked about because I lost my opt-in permission because I, I misused the technology. And so at the moment, I do have some fear that if all the use cases are bad, everyone's going to opt out of Beacons and they won't be very useful. There are some useful apps out there right now. Like So obviously Apple is the inventor of the original iBeacon version and they have Beacons in all the stores. And if you have a Genius Bar appointment and you walk into the store, the store recognizes you and automatically checks you in for that Genius Bar appointment, which seems like a, you know, a really helpful use case for those, those kind of users. I have to be honest, if Starbucks has beacons, I didn't know about it. So I know they, that their app recognizes you w- when you walk in the store, but I actually thought that they were using the, the kind of rougher geolocation data. Huh. I read an article that it was beacon sent. Oh, it, it may be, and I might have just missed it, or maybe they're, they're just starting to pilot it. It, it totally makes sense. I'll, I'll tell you the guys that have the most beacons out there is this company called Shopkick, and they're, they're kind of interesting. Um, because I hated their original business model. They, they have their own app and their own sort of affinity program. And they would, they would put their beacons in retailer stores for free and have those retailers sign people up for the Shopkick affinity program. And it had gamification and, a, you know, a bunch of interesting things to try. But I hated the model because if I'm Target or I'm Best Buy, I want customers using my app in the store and I want them signing up for my loyalty programs. I don't want to have them install another app that, you know, one day a competitor might use to reach my customers. Um, and I, you know, I certainly don't want them confused about what app to use in the store. So while I've always admired Shopkick's ability to get lots of beacons deployed, I was always surprised to see retailers share that much of their customer data with a third party. Um, and one of the interesting things at this year's show is Shopkick is now offering a SDK to allow retailers to leverage those beacon networks with their own customers in their own apps and their own affinity programs. And so to me, that makes them much more retail friendly than they, than they were previously. So I'll, I'll be interested to see if some retailers take advantage of all those beacons with, with these new SDKs. Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to go to the booth, but a couple of the the kind of the email, the ESPs, uh, list track was when I noticed they had added beacons. So they had kind of, you know, email, SMS, social, and then they were adding store slash beacon. So I don't, I don't know, it feels like that's probably more along the uh, geo spam uh, kind of, kind of thing. Um, did you get a chance to look at any of that? Uh, a little bit. Uh, an interesting thing in that whole space that, you know, there's another half of this, which is collecting data about customers that go to the store. And so collecting, using any of these technologies to collect traffic data or to collect information about how customers are shopping through the stores. And it was kind of funny, you know, two or three years ago at NRF, there were maybe eight vendors that were selling solutions that use Wi-Fi to track customers. So, you know, you're, you probably know this, but when you're walking around and you have Wi-Fi turned on your phone, your phone is always looking for new Wi-Fi uh, networks to connect to. And so it's constantly pinging. And uh, the stores could use their routers to see that ping. 
and identify your unique phone and follow it around the store. So, you know, malls were doing that to measure their traffic. Nordstrom's did a pilot where they were measuring their traffic. And three years ago, that was all the rage at, at NRF. It got some really negative customer perception. And so, you know, customers at Nordstrom found out they were being tracked. They thought it was creepy and sort of big brother-ish. And Nordstrom quickly had to back off of it, uninstalled all the technology and apologized. Uh, Senator Schumer threatened to, to create some legislation for do not track in stores. And it really nuked that Wi-Fi industry, you know, before it got started. And so the next year at NRF, everyone is showing beacons to do the same thing. And what, what's a little funny is this year, I was surprised to see that a bunch of those vendors were back to Wi-Fi. So this, you know, the story now is we use every technology to track you. We'll, we'll track you with Bluetooth. We'll track you with Wi-Fi. We'll track you with cameras. But it seems like some of the fear that the vendors had uh, with using Wi-Fi because of that negative perception has, has sort of worn off because I, I saw a lot more Wi-Fi data collection at the show than I had the last couple of years. Yeah. Any other highlights of the show floor? I think we covered most of them. I would mention that I feel like there were several bots at the show. So the the Robot Labs one that you mentioned for Fitment, I thought was pretty cool. Um, IBM had a, a bot in their, their booth that was essentially running Watson. Um, so you, you could have a lot of uh, really interesting natural language conversations with the bot. And then the bot that I think is the most practical for retail was in the Cisco booth. And it's this bot called Tally. And, and Tally goes back to that, that solving that problem we talked about earlier in the show about n- accurately knowing what our store inventory is. Tally is essentially a Roomba with a camera and it does patrols around the store on a regular basis and takes pictures of all the shelves. And then they use visual search to identify all the products on the shelf. So they literally use the pictures to take a real time inventory of the store. And the bot is just constantly doing cycles around the store, updating the inventory, which you know, seems pretty practical uh, and seems potentially really valuable. I guess my one question is, if if it's some product that you have uh, a lot of depth on the shelf, like maybe cans of soup that you you know you're five or six skews deep, I'm not exactly sure how the camera can see that the back row of those cans. But for you know some some products that you know have one facing each, that I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, interesting. Did how? How tall was it? Is it like Roomba size that runs around the floor or does it have some height to it so it can look up the shelves? It looked like there were a couple of configurations, but the all the guts were literally Roomba sized. And then there were configurations that had the camera higher up, right? So it was kind of a, you know, like a GoPro on a stick. I mean, it was more elegant than that. You know, at first I was like, oh gosh, this should have two cameras so that it could take a stereo picture of the shelf so that it could see the depth better. And then they explained to me, uh, you're you're kind of right, but since it's moving... We just take two pictures that are offset and use that to to get the 3D image of the shelf. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah, so I thought that was clever. One thing that's uh, interesting about the show, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but there's the show floor has got like a lot of energy and everyone's happy and you know selling more stuff. Uh, and then as you meet with retailers behind the scenes, you kind of pick up another vibe. And uh, I call that the NRF whispers. So uh, this year I thought it was particularly disjointed where um, you know everything was – 
you know, happy and exciting on the show floor. And then behind the scenes, you could tell that, uh, you know, a lot of the folks, the, especially with the brick and mortar guys, and this has been out in the press, obviously. Um, but you know, as you talk to, to folks, uh, I picked up a vibe that there definitely was, you know, one folk, one person said there's blood in the water that, you know, it's, it was such a, a rough holiday period for so many retailers that, uh, it, it's going to be a, a tough time as they start to announce things. Uh, did you pick up on any whispers like that? I unfortunately did. It it felt pretty negative to me. I think you're right, like that, you know, people are putting the best face on it. And, you know, they talk about how, how weather had an impact on the season. But it really sounds like across the board, particularly the brick and mortar stores were really soft this holiday. And so I, I am nervous that that uh, we're going to see some some pretty negative earnings reports uh, coming up here. And, you know, even in e-commerce where where things were better, you know, it was always funny. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we had a really good year. We were up like 10%. And then you go, well, 10% is, is certainly better than, than your retail stores being flat or up 2%. But if the industry average was 16%, you know, 10% doesn't suddenly sound that exciting. So, you know, it's it kind of funny what, what people were comparing themselves to. There was a lot of comparing themselves to past years instead of, you know, the overall market. Yeah, and I think NRF came in at uh, was it two percent or three percent? Some some you know, low single digit uh, that was off of what they thought that was their um, what they put the holiday out as, and um, and then e-commerce has come in. Uh, we we were at thirteen point three, and and I think we talked about it last show, but Comscore came in at around fourteen percent. So that disparity between online and offline is really growing as well. It's kind of like a six or seven x now. It is, but I will tell you that like our ability to quickly measure online and get accurate estimates is way better than our brick and mortar estimates. So most of those brick and mortar estimates are based on foot traffic that comes from two companies, from Shopper Track and Retail Next. And, you know, they both have cu- uh, customers in a bunch of different categories, but they're mainly in the mass merchants who probably had a decent holiday. And so when you talk to a lot of the specialty retailers that don't use those, those tracking services, we really have no idea what their brick and mortar holiday is like. And of course, traffic doesn't directly correlate to revenue. Um, you know, maybe they bought one SKU instead of the six SKUs they bought last year. I think there's a lot of room for the NRF estimate being, being overly optimistic. I, I really? cer- certainly hope I'm wrong there. Yeah. Another thing that I picked up a lot uh, from the e-commerce folks I talked to was already worrying this year in 16 about fulfillment. Um, and this is ironic because you would think with, uh, you know, Oil prices cratering uh, under thirty dollars a barrel for the first time since uh, I guess thirteen years or something like that. Um, you would think that that you know these things would be going down because the fuel costs are going down. Uh, but everyone's talking about rates going up. Um, there's even talk of an Uber-like surge pricing for holiday sixteen. That the, the carriers are already out there talking to retailers about that. Uh, did you pick up on any fulfillment stuff? I did. I think I heard some of the same grumblings you did. And it, it, I, I think people are right to be concerned. Two years ago, there was sort of a stealthy rate increase. The uh, FedEx and UPS both added this new pricing model called dimensional weight. So, you know, if it was a big box, even if it was light, they, they would be able to charge you more. Um, and then this year, you know, pre-holiday FedEx and UPS both did raise their rates. And, and my understanding is USPS is in the process of raising their rates right now. So the rates are certainly going up. And I think it goes back to exactly what we talked about in our, our holiday preview shows. At most, these, these guys are adding 6% capacity to their networks every year. And we're talking about e-commerce potentially growing 16%. So 
there is not the capacity to sustain all that growth. And so those, those carriers want to maximize the revenue they can with the capacity they do have. Yeah. And, you know, so I think retailers, particularly retailers that aren't named Amazon and uh, both because Amazon has all the volume leverage with UPS and also, you know, because they, they keep building more of their own infrastructure and look like they're going to engineer their own way out of the problem. I think all the rest of retailer has to be really worried about, what what is going to happen to their rates and you know frankly it's going to force most retailers into a lot of better shipping practices than they're following right now so you know you do still see a lot of retailers that still use a single carrier for all shipments as opposed to you know optimizing what the what the best carrier is for each shipment and and uh, delivery address uh you you know there are some novel services that you know deliver things uh, via the air carrier to the zone and then use USPS to deliver it that last mile. And, and those can, can be much more cost effective. USPS can be really cost effective for certain size things. And at the moment, the minority of retailers are optimizing all of those things. And so I think next holiday, I, we'll see a lot more retailers with a lot smarter shipping software figuring out how to ship. And they're also going to get a lot smarter about what and how they put stuff in the box to get the box as small as possible to work around that dimensional weight problem. Yeah. I think the carriers come to them though and want exclusivity. So it's kind of a, a, you know, seems like that's the best way to save money, but I guess you're saying if you actually don't lock in and then, you know, package at the package level, ship the carrier or shop the carriers, it's better. Is that your thesis? The carriers don't generally negotiate a true exclusivity clause. They negotiate, negotiate for volume. And so you know, the, the more volume you commit to an individual carrier, the better rates you can get. But usually that doesn't lock you into exclusively using that carrier. And so I, I do think retailers are going to have to get smarter about both how they negotiate and how they fulfill. Ah, cool. One last holiday thing. Um, There's an interesting survey of uh, uh, some consumers there that revealed that 43% of consumers bought for themselves this holiday. Did you, uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've certainly talked about it before. I'm not a big fan of, of those surveys because it turns out, uh, that consumers aren't honest in, in, in surveys. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, more like 98 or 97% of all consumers shop for themselves in the, in the month of December, you know, generally asking customers how they make shopping decisions or how they behave is not very accurate or very predictive. Well, I thought the positive was 57% of people bought for someone else. So I guess there's a glass half full kind of a side to that. Exactly. And that could definitely explain the softness in retail this quarter if, if uh, you know, suddenly 50% of all consumers stop shopping for themselves. 43% were Grinches, in other words. It's kind of, it's a lot of Grinches out there. It is indeed. The, you know, the last thing that... Um, it is you know kind of the 800 pound gorilla in the room at NRF was Amazon. Um, so uh, you know we uh, nothing to say other than everyone worries about them. How big are they? Are they really soaking up as much as you hear? Um, and I thought that'd be a good segue into some Amazon news. Uh, one thing I saw is one of the Wall Street analysts, Colin Sebastian at RW Baird. He has a team that has built a scraper for Amazon, and uh, so what they do is they go out and they measure all the SKUs, you can kind of like walk the entire Amazon product tree. Um, and 
there's so many products it takes quite a while to do this. So he does this and, and wraps it up into a survey. Um, now, uh, it's important to note that this is SKUs on Amazon, and certainly there are SKUs on Amazon that don't sell and whatnot, but it, so it's kind of directional. Um, but what was interesting is, um, and I talk a lot up to retailers about, is just this explosion of selection in Amazon, that they've got this flywheel going. And the amount of selection they're adding is just massive. Um, and if you believe in a world where you know consumers really care about selection and assortment, Amazon's just so far ahead of everyone. Just to give you some general numbers, Amazon has about 350 million products in general. Um, so what's interesting to me was their selection grew 36% year over year uh, from from fourth quarter 15 to 14, uh, and which is you know pretty impressive when you're into the 300 million kind of range. Uh, two of the fastest growing areas were home and kitchen, and then apparel. Apparel, for example, grew from 11 million SKUs two years ago uh, to 30 million this year. So that, that's kind of a 3x over a two-year period. It's something like 15% month-on-month growth. Um, the uh, other area that's interesting is prime eligibility. So uh, that grew 22% from 30 million last year to 38 million. Uh, another thing that's interesting is I, I get a lot of questions from reporters about Etsy versus Amazon. Amazon now has over 270,000 items in the handmade category. Uh, and then last, uh, you and I always talk about 1P, which is where Amazon is the retailer, and then 3P where other people items are sold. Um, and so if overall Amazon selection went up 36%, 1P actually was quite a bit below that at 29%. And then 3P was at 69%, uh, largely in the electronics and general merchandise care, uh, uh, categories. It's a really dense report. We'll put a link up to it on the tidbits. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Did you see any Amazon news of note? I did. You know, first of all, those, those numbers are huge. Like, I think we're going to have to come up with a, another term besides 800-pound gorilla. It's more like the 1,200-pound gorilla. Yeah. You know, there are a couple other things that are like slightly depressing to those that are trying to compete against Amazon is YouGov does this huge brand index every year. So they talk to over 2.5 million consumers and ask them to name the brands that they think most highly of. And for the third year in a row, the number one brand in their survey is Amazon. So, you know, not only are they, you know, arguably the price leader, you know, they're overwhelmingly the assortment leader. They're, they're also, you know, America's favorite brand. Yeah. Does that um, include like Coca-Cola and Starbucks and everything, or is that just retailers? No, it does. Uh, they do break it down by segment. And of course, Amazon wins the, the retail segment, but Amazon wins overall against every other brand in the U.S. Oh, that, that's impressive when you think about you know, just kind of general retail. There's going to be some percentage of people that are unhappy and return things and just have a bad customer experience. And it's pretty impressive that they're they're able to do that. Yeah, and as they you know serve more and more customers, you would expect them to uh, some of the luster to wear off. But but you know they they continue to do really well. Uh, I got roped into a conversation this week about you know a thought exercise where imagine Amazon opened up a thousand score stores. How scary would that be, and how disruptive for retail would that be? And you know my knee jerk reaction is that wouldn't be incrementally very disruptive at all because Amazon's already having this huge disruption effect. I, I, I'm not sure that the thousand extra stores would make that big a difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny that they don't, they still think in terms of stores. Yep. <laughs> you know, let's think in terms of billions of dollars of GMV they're soaking out of the, the retail space. Exactly. I think, you know, obviously there's a couple estimates out there for GMV, but uh, based on a lot of them, including yours, I think, you know, they're, they're either the second or getting pretty close to the second largest retailer in the U S. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think that when the dust settles, uh, and, and there are a lot of people are uh, very excited for their earnings, which I think are late January or the first week of February. I'll have to look that up and put it in the tidbits. Uh, everyone's kind of on on pins and needles to see how they actually came out for the holiday. Did you see? Uh, I know you love Internet of Things. Did you see uh, the little uh, dash buttons have uh, kind of matured and now they have a replenishment feature? I did. I think that launched today. So now, you know, instead of having to attach a button to your products, a product manufacturer can build the replenishment capability right into their their devices. And so I think one of the first products was some brother printers. And quite brilliantly, when the ink gets below 10%, the printer orders more ink for itself. And I think there's a GE uh, washer that orders um, uh, detergent as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I do think we're going to see an awful lot of that. Like, I think there's going to be a, a subset of commerce that, you know, is, is explicit today that we have to remember to buy toilet paper. We have to remember to buy paper towels. And I think a lot of those sort of replenishment items, our homes and our lives are just going to get sm- smart enough that those things are going to implicitly happen. And, you know, frankly, uh, as a, as a consumer, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. The uh, my car had all these new features added that do this stuff, and it's kind of blowing my mind. Like it'll automatically open my garage door when I get within a certain range now, and it'll warm the car in the morning. It's pretty, pretty. You, you get kind of spoiled by these things, kind of cognitively learning your schedule and then doing things. It's pretty amazing. Hey, I, I, I'm totally jealous that your your car gets firmware updates. <laughs> um, but, but I, I absolutely think that more and more consumer products that, 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 you know, it's not just a matter of what that product can do alone. It's, it's what data and services does that product have access to that make it even more useful and more valuable to you. Yeah. One quick thing. I know we're, we're tight on time here. Uh, we did see this week, uh, and we'll put a link to it on the tidbits, uh, Google, uh, uh, one of the big winners we saw over the holiday was their ad format known as PLAs, product listing ads, or also Google Shopping. Uh, and you've probably seen it. If you go do a Google search, it's the little, it's got a little icon and a price tag. And it used to be kind of over on the right and maybe kind of a two by two matrix. Then it got bigger and bigger. And then now it's kind of moved its way onto the main page. They're now testing a new ad format that's interesting. It starts out usually in a two by X matrix and it's usually either five, six, or seven. Uh, and then it has a little expandable corner and you click that and you're literally your whole screen is taken over by product listing ads. Um, we we detected that, and it's probably just something they're testing. But it's really interesting that you know um, I was helping a lot of retailers understand that Google has just really cranked up the every dial on that program. So the percentage of times it shows up, the number of widgets that show up, the number of products inside the widgets, um, all these kinds of you know ways they can tweak that program. So 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 Google seems you know to be not only committed to that program, but is always continuing to test how they can send more traffic to it. Absolutely. You know, it, it's probably important to remind everyone that Google does do a lot of tests. And so we don't know if, if this is just one of many tests or something that's close to rolling out, but it certainly makes sense. Uh, those PLAs are one of the highest ROI flavors of uh, paid marketing that, that most retailers and product manufacturers can do. And so you know, it, it, it makes total sense that Google would want to try to figure out a way to get more visibility for more of those listings. Yeah. Well, that, that's all I had. And just want to thank everyone for listening and uh, hope you enjoyed our NRF recap episode 10. Yeah. Thank, uh, I just want to thank the listeners for sticking with us. And it was certainly a joy to get some, uh, spend some time with you in person this week, Scott, and look you forward too. to talking with you again next week. Bye, everybody. Cheers. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 